least favorite question in the world is, are you ready? And the reason that is, is because it usually means I'm not ready at all. Usually it's about something really big that's going to come up. And when someone asks me, am I ready? It makes me realize how much I'm not ready. The worst time this question was asked was when my wife, Celeste, was pregnant with our first daughter, Lydia. And at first, when you announce you're pregnant, people get really excited for you. They, they, get, they, they tell you congratulations. They start asking you, what do you think the gender is? What are you excited for? But as the due date gets closer and closer, every conversation begins around, hey, are you ready? And as an insecure man, of course, I'm going to say, yes, yes, I'm ready, outwardly. But inwardly, I'm screaming, no, I'm not ready at all. How in the world am I supposed to get ready for a a new child to come into the world? Externally, I'm saying yes. Internally, I'm scared to death. But here's the interesting thing. Even though I was not 100% ready or could ever be 100% ready for my daughter to come into the world, I started acting like it, didn't I? So, yes, of course, I I, I can never get 100% ready for Lydia to be born. But what did me and Celeste start doing? We started fixing up the nursery. We started buying a crib. We got clothes. We got diapers. We started asking around to our friends, hey, what's it like to raise a girl? We read books. We went to classes. Even one person told us we need to start preparing our dog for a new child to come in. So we started preparing our dog, whatever that means. (laughs) Even though we weren't ever going to be completely ready for this new child, we were trying to prepare to be ready. And Jesus' purpose in this parable this morning is to get us ready, even though we'll never be ready. Over the last four weeks, we have studied Jesus' parables, getting us ready for Easter. These parables that have been confusing, that have been shocking, that have been offensive. Jesus' way of preparing our hearts for his coming. And now we come to the parable of the talents. The longest parable in Matthew the last parable in Matthew, and Jesus is telling us he's not just trying to get us ready for Easter, but he's also trying to get us ready for the end. He shifts his focus not just to his first coming, but to his second coming, trying to prepare our hearts for what's to come. So three points this morning to help us get ready. The setting of the parable, the story of the parable, and the shock of the parable. And I'll go through those one by one. First, let's start with the setting. As I read this parable, you've probably heard it before in some form. It's, it's a really famous parable. But this parable is often misinterpreted, and it's often misinterpreted because it's taken out of its context. It's taken out of its setting. So look at verse 14 and 15. Do not miss this. Jesus starts by saying, For it will be like a man going on a journey. To understand this parable and what Jesus is trying to prepare us for this morning, we have to first understand, what is that it? Because the whole story is based around us understanding what Jesus means when he says, for it will be like. We spent the last four weeks in Matthew 21 and 22, and now we've jumped ahead to Matthew 25. And a lot has happened in those three chapters to provide the context for this parable. In fact, right before this, in Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples start asking him a lot of questions about what's coming. They start asking him a lot of questions about what the end is going to be like. 
Matthew 24, 3. As Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? Do you see their questions? Jesus has come into Jerusalem. They know he's coming into this final act. They know it's a big deal. And so they have all these questions about, Jesus, what's the end going to be like? And Jesus' parables in Matthew 25 are the answers to their questions. This parable is an answer to their question about the end. Their questions about the coming of God's kingdom. And that is why Jesus starts out this parable by saying, For it, it being the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey. And then verse 15 he says, Then the master went away. He's trying to prepare his disciples for that moment in the end after his death and resurrection when he goes away. He's trying to prepare his disciples what it looks like to live between his first and second coming. And you see for the disciples, the end was just a a matter of speculation. His disciples were fixated on when's it going to happen? What's it going to be like? How are things going to turn out? And not much has changed today, have they? When we hear about end times, when we think about the the idea of eschatology or what the end might look like, what do we hear about? What What are we fixated on? It's all about controversy or debate. I mean, how many people have we seen just in our lifetimes try to predict the end of the world, trying to figure out exact date for when Jesus is coming back? But you see from this parable, for Jesus, the end was not a matter of speculation. The end was a matter of preparation. When the Bible teaches about the end, when the Bible teaches about the coming of God's kingdom, it's always about how to live now in the present. It's for encouragement in times of despair, for endurance in times of persecution, for warning in times of drifting. When the Bible talks about the end, it's about how to live right now. And that's exactly why Jesus is telling this parable. So the disciples would know what it might look like to live when Jesus went away. Because that's what thinking about the end always does. Thinking about the end always helps us to live better now. At this point, COVID seems like it was a lifetime ago, even though it wasn't. And I don't know if you remember the story that happened during the midst of of COVID, but at the height of the pandemic in in the summer of 2020, when everything was so controversial, when everything was so divisive, everyone had all these questions, everyone had all these opinions about what was going on, the New York Times actually did something very different, and they did something very powerful. In May of 2020, uh, at the height of the pandemic, on their Sunday news front cover, They didn't list another report. They didn't give another opinion. They just listed name after name after name of all the people that had died in the past year. And beside those names, in one sentence they wrote from their local obituaries something they were remembered for. And let me read a couple of those for you. Some were really funny. Fred Walter Gray, 75, Benton County, Washington, Liked his bacon and hash browns really crispy. (laughs) Something to be remembered for. Some were not funny. They were really sad. Jermaine Jero, 87, North Dakota. Not enough time to enjoy her new marriage. 
Some were inspiring. Bassie often, 25 Michigan. She saw friends at their worst, but constantly brought out their best. And it was page after page of this, name after name. And as you, as you started to read those names and read those sentences, it became really sobering for me and for everyone else that read that. What would my life look like if it was uh, named down to one sentence? What would my life look like if it was just narrowed down to one thing to be remembered for? To think at the end of it all, in one sentence, what's my life like? You see, what, what was the New York Times doing? In the midst of all that speculation, in the midst of all that controversy, they brought out the end to help us to see what really matters right now. And that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. He is giving them a parable about what the end times is going to be to help them live right here in the now. And every week before communion, we say it, right? In our words of institution, we say, what is the hope of the church? And what is our response? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ shall come again. You see, those are not just words. Those are the bookends of our faith. We do that because to live well right now in the present, we must look back to the past that Christ has died and he has risen, and we must look to the future to see that he will come again. And that is the setting for this parable. Jesus is saying the master is gone, but he will come back. And the fact that he will come back makes a big difference in how we live right now. So let's look at that next. We've seen the setting of this parable, the end with Jesus' second coming. Now let's look at the story. How are we to live in light of Jesus' coming? What is the purpose for the Christian life here now as we wait? Let's look at the story. You see it there in verse 16. And this story is pretty straightforward on the surface. It's not super hard to figure out. The master is going away. And as he goes away, he entrusts his property to three servants there. He gives one servant five talent. He gives another servant two talents. And he gives the last, the third servant, one talent. Now, to understand the story, you need to understand a talent today is much different than a talent now. When we hear the word talent, we think a special gift, a special ability. And he's not saying this at all. He's not saying that one was super gifted, one was medium gifted, and one was not really that gifted at all, so he only got one. No, during that time, a talent was the largest unit of money available. In fact, scholars have said that one talent alone was worth about 20 years' wages. So what he's given them is not some special ability. He's given them money. He's entrusted to each of them large, large amounts of money to be faithful with. And what do they do with this money? What do they do while they waited for the master to come back? Well, you see it there in the passage. The first two servants go to work with what they've been given. The first goes to work with his five. He puts it into trade and comes back with ten, with, with five more equaling ten. The second goes to work with his two. He also comes back with two more. But the third didn't work at all with his. Instead, he dug a hole in the ground and buried it there, which in that time was a very safe way to store your property. But here's the lesson for us. Here's the lesson for us in verse 19. Now, after a long time, again, think about the second coming with Jesus. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and they settled accounts with them. 
And this story is about to answer one of the most important questions you can have in life. What is your purpose here on earth right now? What matters most to Jesus in the end when he comes back to settle all accounts? Here's what matters to Jesus. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. Master, you you delivered to me five talents here. Here, I've made five talents more. You can hear his giddiness. And here's the lesson. Verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. What matters the most to the master? It wasn't what they produced, was it? Because one produced ten, the other produced four. Yet both the first and second servant servant received the exact same praise. It wasn't necessarily about how much they produced. It was, were they faithful with what they've been given? That's the praise of the master, both for the one that brought back four and that brought back ten. You are a good and faithful servant. You have been faithful what you've been given, and now they get to enter into the very joy of the master they have served. What are the followers of Christ be doing while we wait for our Savior to return? We are to be faithful what we've been given. No more and no less. And this parable can be paradigm shifting for us if we allow it, especially in our American context. You see, this parable is teaching us that we are not owners over anything. We are just stewards. Everything that we've been given, like the servants in the parable, come from our master. Everything we have has been given to us by God. Our time, our money, our jobs, our energies, our thoughts, our homes, our families. It is all given to us by God, and he has given us a great responsibility to steward it well. And what's it look like to steward it well? Not the American versions of success. Not producing the most possible you can possibly do. It's to be faithful with what you've been given. So what does it mean to be faithful? There was a woman that used to go to this church a little while ago. She was here for a while, and she was also at Hope Presbyterian downtown. And she's moved away now to Louisville to continue practicing her law. But she was a child advocacy, she was a child advocacy lawyer in Lexington. And I don't know if you know exactly what that means, but her job was a really, really difficult job. Her job was to represent children that had been under all kinds of abuse and neglect. So every day she would show up and she'd work with them. She'd represent them in the court. She'd work on their legal documents. And you can imagine, can't you, the pressure, the responsibility, every day waking up wondering if you're doing enough, wondering if you're fixing all the problems, all the new cases of injustice, all the new things with abuse. And while I was doing college ministry, she came and talked to some of our seniors about her work life. And she was talking to our seniors about what life might look like after college for them. And after she got done talking about her job and her everyday and what she's up against, one student asked her, hey, when you see all the problems of the world, all the problems that you face with child abuse and injustice, how do you keep getting up in the morning? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, I think about the boy with the five loaves and the two fish constantly. 
She said, I think about that boy with the five loaves and the two fish, and he is facing that great crowd, that great multitude of thousands and thousands of people, and they have no food to eat, and they are hungry. How are they going to be fed? And what does that little boy do? That little boy can't feed them all. All he has is five loaves and two fish. But you know what the boy doesn't do? He doesn't keep his lunch to himself. He takes the lunch that has been given to him, probably by his mom that day. He takes that little lunch he has, and he brings that lunch to Jesus, fully trusting in, I don't know what to do here. I can't feed these people, but here's what I have, Jesus. I know you can. He takes what he has to Jesus, and Jesus uses his faithfulness to feed all the people there in abundance. And this lady says she thinks about that. She thinks about that when she enters into the courtroom. She thinks about that when she visits with a family or talks to a child. She thinks about that when she lays down her head at night. Lord, I cannot fix this. Help me be faithful with what I've been given. So this morning, can we please change the scorecard? Can you let Jesus' parable change your scorecard for life? I look out this room, and I know you come in here this morning with so many different struggles and problems, things you can't possibly fix in your own personal life, with your sins and your suffering, in your work life, with job responsibilities or relational struggles. I know there's things in your family that you wish you could fix tomorrow, and you just can't do it. And you know what? This parable is teaching us that Jesus doesn't expect you to. Jesus does not expect you to fix all the problems in the world. He doesn't even expect you to fix all the problems in your life. He is asking you to be faithful what he's been given to you. He wants you to be faithful. The one that produced 10 and the one that produced 4, they got the exact same praise because they were both faithful and put to work what had been given to them. This parable teaches us that Jesus is looking for faithfulness. So the question we have to end with is, what will keep us from that faithfulness? We've seen the setting of the story. We've seen the, the story behind the story. Now let's finish with the third servant and the shock of this parable. Like all of Jesus' parable, there's a shock, and he saves it for the end. I don't know if you noticed that. But as we've been doing the parables... The shock always comes to the end, and it's very, very offensive. So if you've been here the last four weeks and you've been offended, that's probably a good sign. Because Jesus tells his parables to be offensive. For the hard of hearing, he wants to shout. And this is what he does in this parable as well. He shouts at the end. Look at verse 24 with the third servant. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And here's the shock. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to invest my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. And look at verse 30. This is what he does with that servant. 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this simple story about faithfulness just ended with utter darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we understand that the master might be frustrated. We understand the master who given him this talent, this, this large sum of money, 20 years worth of wages, and, the, and, the, and he didn't do anything. We understand the frustration here. We'd be frustrated too. If you hired someone to do a really important job, you went away for a long time and you came back, and that person did nothing, you would probably have some words for them, wouldn't you? You'd be frustrated. That person would probably end up getting fired. But what's shocking is not that this servant gets fired, but the servant gets cast into outer darkness. The servant gets put in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master's response seems a little harsh, doesn't it? And if the master is Jesus, this seems really out of character. I mean, Jesus is gentle and lowly of heart, right? Jesus is full of grace, right? He didn't just say the servant is lazy. He says a servant is wicked and worthless. I mean, this guy didn't steal from the master. He didn't squander the master's money away. He just hid it. So what's going on here? Why such the harsh words from the master who represents Jesus? Well, you see, as Jesus has been moving closer and closer to the cross, he's not only having conversations with the disciples, but the conflict is growing between him and the religious leaders. He's been in constant conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes, to the point that if you look back in Matthew 23, Jesus devotes an entire chapter to the harshest language language you'll see out of his mouth. Matthew 23 is a whole chapter in our Holy Scripture completely devoted to cursing the Pharisees and the scribes. He brings down seven woes against them. And you know, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus never had a problem with the sinners, but he had a big-time problem with the religious leaders. You see, the third servant in this parable represents the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious leaders who had been given the law of Moses, who had been given the Holy Scriptures, who had been put in charge of the temple, who had been given this by God to bless a broken world, and what did they do? They hid it. They kept it to themselves. They put the outcast further outcast. They grumbled and complained when Jesus would eat with sinners and tax collectors, saying, you shouldn't be with those types of people. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Do you understand the parable now? Do you understand the harsh response from the master? He is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes because the the unit of money they had, the talent they had, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they had kept it from everyone that needed it. Why? Why would they do it? Well, you hear it there in the excuse of the third servant in verse 24. To the master who had literally given them 20 years of wages, the largest unit of money available, the servant says, I knew you to be a hard man. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. 
You see, the Pharisees had a hard view of God, and a hard view of God will give you a hard view of everything. Do you recognize those words from the third servant? I knew you to be a hard man, so I was afraid and went and hid it. Those words are not original to that servant, but those words can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Those words did not start with that servant. They started with the serpent in the garden. And you see how familiar this story is now. It's the story of everything. Adam and Eve were given everything by God, everything that they could see to enjoy and to steward well for his purposes and the good of their neighbor. And the serpent got them to believe the lie that God isn't really that gracious, that God is actually really restrictive. He is a hard man, and he doesn't want you to really enjoy what he's, what he's given you. So what did Adam and Eve do? They did what the third servant did, didn't they? They took what was not theirs, and they hid. And that's not just a danger then. That's still the danger now, and why we must open our eyes and ears to this parable. This is the danger of religious people. I'll give you the example. I'm not really allowed to say this as a pastor, but I've never read the Lord of the Rings books. I'm sorry. I know that's, that's taboo in these circles. I've seen the movies, but I've also realized that doesn't count. But if, you've, if you haven't read the books or seen the movies, you know the story. You know the story of it's, it's Frodo Baggins who's been given this great responsibility to steward the mission to go across the world and destroy the one ring that's causing destruction to everything. And Frodo, who's never left the Shire, who's never left his home, is scared for a lot, a lot of reasons. But you, but you realize, as you go throughout the story, what he's scared of isn't what he should be scared of. He's scared of the evil power and the evil armies that's out there. He's scared of the treacherous journey and what might happen when he goes on it. But the biggest danger to Frodo was never out there. The biggest danger to Frodo throughout the Lord of the Rings is always in here. Do you remember the power of the ring? The power of the ring was trying to get Frodo to say, mine. That was the power of the ring. Way more than the armies, way more than the evil. If the power of the ring could get Frodo to say, mine, the whole mission's gone. And that's been the temptation of the devil since the beginning. That's the danger of the parable that Jesus is speaking against. And that's the danger this morning as well to take what has been freely given by God and to say, no, that's mine. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. And what did they do? We read it in Jonah 4. They hid it. Jonah ran and hid it. And even when he did speak about God's graciousness, he was mad about it. What happened in the New Testament? The religious leaders were called to be salt and light to the world and they said, no, this is mine, and they buried it. They constantly kept the sinners out. And it's no surprise that when Jesus shows up on the scene as a physical manifestation of God's grace, what do they do with him to? They bury him. In three days, we're going to find out that, that Jesus is going to go to Passover, and he's going to wake up the next day, and they're going to bury him too. And you know what the real shocker of the story is? Jesus lets them. He lets them because he knows our hard hearts can only be changed by his grace. 
You see, our constant refrain in this life is mine, mine. But these next two weeks with Easter, as we go next Sunday into the triumphal entry and we go into Holy Week and all these events, all you're going to hear from Jesus' mouth is not mine, but yours. You're going to hear him in the garden praying to God, not my will, Father, but your will. You're going to hear him getting betrayed by his friends, saying, not my way, Judas, but your way. You're going to hear him getting arrested and speaking before Pilate and saying, not my verdict, your verdict, Pilate. And it's all going to culminate on that Good Friday, which we celebrate each week with communion. And what does Jesus say to us in communion through the cross? He says, my body, not for me, but for you. My blood, not for me, shed for you. And this is your Savior this morning, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and died the death on a cross. And we praise his name for it. You see, the servant got it all wrong. The servant got it completely wrong. Our God is not a hard man. He is full of grace. And as we prepare for Easter, may we be too. Let's pray. Father, we hear you. We hear you shouting at us, and I pray that we would hear it well. Lord, that you'd help us practice what we've learned from this passage, Lord. That we would see you in all kinds of new light. That we'd see you for the the gracious master that you are. And that you'd help people in this room, wherever they're at, whatever they've been given, be faithful to you in that. Lord, thank you for your grace.